0: Hi, you guys. This is Liz Ryan, and this is episode 33 of the Truth About Work podcast. We got some stuff to talk about and some questions to answer. If you have a question for me, just send it to support at humanworkplace.com. I answer questions all the time here on the podcast and also on Twitter and LinkedIn, Facebook, stuff like that. So, yeah, here's our first question. Question is from Vaughn. Liz, I got a call from a recruiter who talked to me for 20 minutes about a job. I sent my resume. It was hard to get them to call me back. I had to leave three messages. When he finally called me back, he said, I put in your resume, but you're a stretch candidate for the role. What did he mean, and why did he say that? All right. Typically, Vaughn, recruiters will reach out to you if your LinkedIn profile looks like you might have the skills for the job they're trying to fill. Then he got your resume. He might have not liked your resume, or he might have just had a couple of candidates in there in the mix already who are getting interviews. So he's going to he's gonna stay on that horse. You know what I mean? He's going to push that horse. Those people are further ahead in the race, as it were. And if for some reason the employer doesn't want one of his existing candidates in the mix, then he might come to you and get your resume in there. A common thing for recruiters to say is you're a stretch candidate. It doesn't make that much sense. It means it would be a stretch for them to hire you, but it's like, well, why didn't you, why did you tell me that on the phone? You had me on the phone for 20 minutes. I'm not sure you're really a stretch candidate, Vaughn. It's one of the common things recruiters have in their little conversational toolkit. You're a stretch candidate means, I don't know. I don't know if I can get you a job. Or not. I wouldn't take it to heart. I wouldn't read anything into it because there are a lot of factors in your candidacy for a particular job including timing the relationship this recruiter has with the client or doesn't have all kinds of things that have nothing to do with your qualifications for the role. Well here's here's what gets real squirrely is when you're on the phone with a with a recruiter and they say yeah you're kind of a stretch candidate and you say and then you get to say oh that's interesting it's we've been on the phone 20 minutes what What did you hear from me or not hear that causes you to make that assessment? And then they're going to mumble something, uh, you know, and you can always say, you know what, I would hate to use your time up. I know you get paid on commission and you only get paid if one of your candidates accepts an offer. So listen, you know, if you have folks in the pipeline that are stronger candidates than I am for this job, don't let me use up any of your time or for that matter, my time. And I'm not talking about being snarky. I'm just being saying, be honest. Say, you know, I hate to use it for time. If they say, no, 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 let's stay on the phone, then you know. You're not really a stretch candidate. Obviously, if someone is only paid on successful uh, placements, offers accepted, they're not going to waste time on the phone with someone who is not a valid and viable candidate for the role. So take that stretch candidate stuff with a big grain of salt, Vaughn, or like an entire salt truck. You know what I mean? the ones they put on the highway when it's snowing, the whole truck of salt. Don't ever let anything a recruiter or any interviewer says impact your self-esteem. They say it to make themselves feel better or to soften you up. That's a real thing too, to soften you up, to feel less than so that you'll take the first offer you get. Be wary. Drive that salt truck. You know what I'm saying, Vaughn? All right. Chan has a question, Liz, you tell us not to use praising adjectives in our resume or LinkedIn profile, like savvy, strategic, etc. cetera. But how do I get across my power without doing that? Wow. Okay. Great question, Chan. Thank you for asking that. Yeah. We've been trained, haven't we, to use praising adjectives. I'm insightful. I'm results oriented. I'm dynamic, innovative, a disruptor. And that stuff just weakens you. You can hear it as I'm speaking, right? Don't I sound like a complete dork full of hot air? I'm this, I'm that. First of all, when you tell somebody about your personal attributes, why are you believable? You're the opposite of believable because A, they don't know you and B, they're wondering why are you praising yourself? Are you afraid that you wouldn't live up to these attributes you're claiming if I actually met you in person? So you never want to claim these positive attributes. It's gross. It's a low power strategy, right? It's grovelly. You're act, Even when you do it on LinkedIn, especially it's like groveling to the whole world. I'm great. It's like, okay, dude. Okay. All right. You're great. Okay. No, let other people praise you, which they will organically, happily in, in your endorsements on LinkedIn. Let them praise you. You don't need to praise yourself. You just tell your simple human story. I started out in marketing communications and was drawn to product development. Just be yourself in the story. Use the word I. The other thing you don't need, you don't need the praising adjectives. Get them out of there. And the other thing you don't need is that pure jargon that you see in so many resumes and LinkedIn profiles. Motivated self-starter with a bottom line orientation. That's garbage. That's from the 80s. It doesn't say anything. It's like I'm afraid to sound like myself. So I'm going to sound like this business robot uh, archetype. You know what I mean? Don't use that stuff. Just say, here's what you're going to say, like in your LinkedIn summary or the summary at the top of your resume. I've been doing PR since I had an internship with the college newspaper and got assigned to write business stories. As a PR manager, I've gotten my employers covered by CNN, the Chicago Tribune, and Investor's Business Daily. That's it. That's I'm just standing here. I'm in my power, right? I'm not leaning out to say, please find me worthy. So, so we're reclaiming our power by speaking in a human voice. You're awesome, Chan. You don't need to praise yourself. Okay, we have a question for Gordon. Hi, Liz. I need to start planning now for my performance and salary review, which takes place in December. I want to ask my boss for a bigger than average raise but my job has essentially doubled over the past year. How do I begin? Ooh, Gordon, rock on, what a great project. First thing you're gonna do is go back to your 2020 goals, whatever written goals, or even if they weren't written down, as long as you know what they are and you believe your manager was pretty much on board with the same set of goals, you start with that. You're gonna do like a two-page report. You could use graphics, you could use pie charts, Don't make it too dense. Make it full of white space on the page. Easier to read, right? And you're going to say, here were my 2020 goals. And here's what I've done so far. It's just about October. Look at, I did this. I did that. You lay it out. Lay it out what you accomplished. Because your manager will forget. Every manager forgets. They have more than you, just you to supervise, obviously. They've got pressure coming down from the top. They're all beset. And besieged on all sides by swamps, alligators, you know, firefighting. They're crazed. We're all crazed, especially now. So you you recap your year so far. And you and you have to get agreement on that first. So when you present this, this two-page report to your manager, the first thing you're gonna do is go through the history. Because you gotta make sure that they are on your side and your champion before you ask for a raise, right? You have to do that. So you start by recapping 2020, and then you lay out your 2021 plan in the same report. Bullet points, simple stuff, big 32 point type. This is a show and tell. It's not a dense report. They have to read full paragraphs. They're not going to do that. They're super not going to do that. So you make it very graphical, colorful, and you say, here's my charter. Here's my plan and my vision for this role in 2021. And here's what i like to accomplish. In in the 2020 recap part, Gordon, you're also going to call out where your job description enlarged. You say, I started the year doing blah, 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 maintaining the database, troubleshooting this, handling customer complaints, whatever. And at the end of the year, I had taken on. So what you can do, what you could do is use two different ink colors and you could do the first four or five bullet points. Here's what I accomplished in the stuff that I already was responsible for at the start of 2020, and then switch the color and say, and here's what I added to my role. Right. And that's a way of graphically showing visually showing, wow, I have really expanded this role. Cause once again, your boss will not track with that throughout the course of the year. We always think our bosses will, will track better than they do with the changes in our job. They just don't, they have their own job that they're, that they're freaking out about. You know what I mean? So now you've laid out that you really accomplished pretty much everything you were supposed to do in 2020 and maybe exceeded some of the stuff. You've enlarged your role. And now here's my ambitious plan for 2021. And then you put a number right on that same report. This is actually the leave behind the the, the two page flyer that your boss is gonna hand to their boss or get it to them electronically when they pitch their boss on this idea of giving you a bigger than average raise. So let's say your salary right now is $45,000 and you, you want to raise to 55. That's a lot. Let's say 52, which is a lot more than they would normally give. But you're going to say, here's the role that I'm now doing. And the great thing is I was able to slide from the old to the new and essentially double my workload. And I think comport myself well in the role, get a lot of stuff done. I'm looking forward to 2021 and accomplishing all this other stuff. It's like going to cost you like 500 bucks a month. It's basically nothing. So it's a pitch, but you start with the past, bring your manager up to date. If they did not agree with you that you had a good 2020, you're not getting the big raise you want, right? So you you would say, oh, well, thanks for sharing that different point of view. I didn't realize we were not on the same page. It's really good to get that clarity, you know, and let's keep talking about how we can align your vision and mine. Or you might start job honey, or you might do both, but you got to start with the past and get that, get that agreement. The man, your manager may freak when they see the number. Wow, you want fifty-two? That's a seven thousand dollar raise. I, I would normally get budget. You're getting forty-five. I might be able to give you, you know, twenty-five hundred dollars, but I'm not sure about seven. And you say, well, so I totally understand that. I know budgets are tight. Here, here's the question: Do you feel like what do you? What would you give me if it was your money? If you got to decide. Oh, I'd give you a million dollars. I think you're amazing. No, but I mean, in the context of the real world and this company and what you know about the budget, tightness or otherwise, you know, what would you... Because I need to know where you stand as my advocate, just even apart from whether I get a raise or not. That's very important for me to know. So you're going to put them on the spot just a little bit. This is called selling the seller. You're going to see whether, you know, you guys are aligned on this. They're not going to go to bat for you unless they believe that you, you know, really deserve what you're asking for. So it's a meeting about clarifying. Don't be afraid. Information is good. Lack of information is the problem. Once you know, once your manager says, look it, I will go to my boss. I will not show them this piece of paper with the big $52,000 on it and the 40 point type. I'm not going to do that because their head will explode, right? I'm going to say I need to get more money to Gordon. And we need to look at the budget. And I and Gordon, I don't know if I can get you 7 grand. That's a lot of money. That's like two jumps up in our salary structure, but let me see what I can do. That is basically the best answer you can hope for in this day and age. And it's pretty good because it means your boss is willing to spend some of his or her political capital, you know, on you, on keeping you, which is great. And in terms of alternatives and looking around at the wider job market, we should always be doing that. As far as I'm concerned, always be looking outside the company walls. Always, always, always. So both sets of muscles get bigger, right? The internal selling your idea of a pay raise upstream gets, gets stronger, those muscles, and then also looking outside at the outside world. Okie dokie. Mariah has a question. Hi, Liz. Is it still the thing to ask for an informational interview as a way of getting in through the side door for a job? Mm, Mariah? Kind of. I mean, informational interviews had their heyday in the 80s and 90s. That's an old-fashioned idea, like so many of the things we talk about. I wouldn't tell you not to, like a friend of the family or some kind of business connection. You saw someone speak at an event, some muckety-muck from some company or whatever. I wouldn't tell you not to, but there was a kind of a scam with the whole informational interview thing because people used it, just as you mentioned that you were planning to, as a way in side door for a job interview. And- the thing is, that's not what informational interviews were. That's They're called informational interviews because it was, I want to get information about the business world or just the grown-up world and your company and stuff. So when, when when executives who were hit up for these informational interviews kind of figured out that everyone who comes for an informational interview is going to hit them up in the sanctity of their office, well, now it would be Zoom, but you know, in that kind of inner sanctum for a job, it's it's a little bit annoying. You got to admit, right? You, you ask for informational interview for information and now you're here, you're like, will you hire me? And that's awkward socially. So it kind of soured the whole informational interview market for everybody, right? Like they're not so easily granting these informational interviews anymore because they're like, yeah, I did 40 of those and 40 times people say, can I have a job? So... If you want to do it, I mean, the the success rate, I think, is pretty low unless you have some special in, in which case you can just give them your resume. The person who knows that executive can just say, hey, hey, this is my friend Mariah. She's amazing. Here's her resume. Forget the informational interview. But, I mean, if you want to do it, you should do it. I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you, you know, what we teach at Human Workplace is an outreach to a person you don't know called a pain letter. And you could read about pain letters that... Don't, don't call on somebody's philanthropic or mentory uh, impulses the way an informational interview does. That's, there's nothing in it for them, right? Except to feel good about being a community member and a mentor and a maybe elder statesman, whatever. But, but you're actually talking to them about their pain. And it, it takes more time to prepare to send a pain letter, but they very often hit pay dirt too and, and help folks get jobs. And that's another way in through the side door. Yeah. So I want to talk about leadership coaching a bit because I got an email from a leadership coach, an executive coach who said, it's very frustrating when I do executive coaching, I feel like I have good, solid advice to share. But of course, the person who's being coached by me, company pays for it. Uh, they don't take my advice. They listen and they're polite and we're on the phone or we're on a Zoom call and then they don't take the advice and I talk to them again in two weeks or whatever and they haven't taken my advice and they asked me a variation of the question they asked me two weeks ago, but now the situation is worse because they ignored what I said. I can't just fire all of my clients, right? I can't just go upstream somehow magically and get better clients who are more attentive and who will listen, not really sure what to do. I thought this was such a great... Uh, query because this is an inherent problem in executive coaching and here's the problem you know laid bare right is that they're paying you so they feel they don't have to listen many many years ago when I started coaching executives I re and I wasn't an external executive coach I was inside working inside as a as an HR leader and they would sometimes take my advice and sometimes not and that's life and we can't expect anybody to take all of our advice even our the people closest to us right family members and stuff we're not we're not gods and goddesses we are but you know what i mean in this context they have to be free to take our advice or reject it but we don't race back there to tell them how to clean up the mistake necessarily when they spurn the advice we say well that's the learning is how to you know how to uh climb out of this given that you didn't take the advice and that's not nasty it's not mean it's not withholding anything it's just come on here in Colorado, where I live, there's an organization called Love and Logic, and I heard about it from a parent. It's a parenting thing. They teach you natural consequences is really what's going to teach your kid. You have to keep them safe, but your punishments mean very little. Punishments, if you will, or consequences from the outside world, you know, impact the kid a lot. So, so it's kind of the same thing when we're grown-ups. It's kind of love and logic idea that you know this is what happens. The reason I told you XYZ is because I didn't want you to face what you're dealing with right now. The consequence of, you know, not doing what I suggested. And I totally get why you decided not to, but you know, here you are. So how are you going to climb out of that? You are not there to mop up. You are not there to, to, to spoon feed that, but it is a baked in problem with executive coaching. They pay and therefore they feel it's the kind of coaching where it's just suggestions for them to accept or reject. I personally am not into that kind of coaching and I would never spend my time that way. And I view coaching as like if you apply to study under an Olympic you know gymnastics coach that might be a bad example, but skating coach, somebody who's not abusive to their to their athletes, um, if you apply to study under the best violin teacher, in, in the Western Hemisphere, they don't take just everybody and so you're, you're going to agree to do certain things to be in their studio. You're going to agree to not miss your lessons and you're going to agree to practice and you're going to agree to you know, have some, some cohesion among your two artistic points of view or why would they take time out of their day and give you space in their studio? They get to choose. So you are that Olympic coach or that world-class violin teacher or whatever. You also get to decide. And although I understand why you say I can't just snap my fingers and move up to a better class of, of client, I actually feel you can do that. And you have to do that because otherwise you're not a coach. You're just, you're just a wall for them to kind of spout their frustrations and anxieties into. That, that is, dishonors you and weakens you and dims your flame. So you have to start setting boundaries with these guys. You have to say, you know what, I understand that, you know, you get input from a lot of places and I'm just one of the folks that is recommending courses of action for you, but we have to figure out whether, you know, it makes sense for us to keep coaching together because it's too frustrating. I'm not willing to come here and give you my, my best guidance and then have 99% of it rejected out of hand? Why would I Why would I be willing to keep working with you? And why would you want to keep working with me? There's probably lower cost people that you could just sort of, you know, talk to about what's on your mind, maybe even your cat or your dog. You know what I mean? You do, you have to set boundaries. That's the only way to lift up. I say in um, some video that I think it's on our site, it's on YouTube, I don't know, talking at Northwestern University, and they said, how do you go up you know, in price or whatever, stature, price, as a thought leader, I know people hate that term, as a speaker, as a whatever. I say, you say, no, you say, no, 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 just like as a performer. You say, nope, 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 yes. And you have to be willing to slam doors. And I slammed some doors that, were painful to slam I was like, Oh, how am I going to replace that revenue? But you have to trust that the revenue will be replaced. Maybe not immediately, but you have to be willing to say, no, that's for working people. That's for speakers. That's for coaches. That's everybody. And people will say, no way. That's horrible. And they'll come back. Some of them will come back and you'll say, Oh, wow. Look at that boomerang action. Of course you're respectful. And you say, okay, sounds like this makes sense for you now didn't seem like it made sense before but now it does that's cool let's do a contract let's get going executive coaching is not executive coaching unless you are calling the shots it's your practice it is your practice and that's your art you don't let people dictate because they're paying you what your art is you know that is fundamental all right yeah so leadership leadership just to close up we have a bad concept of leadership here in the Western world and it infects everything in the working world. We teach leaders, you are a leader, you were promoted, therefore you have the authority of the corporation on you and you can tell people what to do and here's what to do if they don't listen to you and here's how to write them up and all this stuff. It's garbage. We should be telling leaders how to feel stronger in themselves without any backing behind them and how to earn respect and how to stand up to their manager and advocate for employees. And then if they are told to do something unethical, they should call it out and and if necessary quit. That's what leaders need is more backbone in themselves, not to rest on Godzilla, the scaly monster of toxic fear-based bureaucracy, right? So in 2021, I'm gonna create a leadership curriculum. You heard heard it here first. The time has come. We've got all the stuff around job search. We've got tons of stuff around HR consulting being a thought leader we got to do the leadership piece because it's huge it's absolutely huge but just to fi- finish you guys if you have a question for me please send it to us at support at follow us on twitter and facebook and linkedin and all those places even instagram and of course right here the truth about work podcast